Today's reading is Romans chapter 10, verses 8 through 13. Listen now to the word of the Lord. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is, the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. The word of the Lord. Good morning. Uh, Just a couple of quick uh, announcements um, before we begin. Uh, The first is that uh, beginning in two Sundays, so on June 17th, uh, we are going to resume our morning, Sunday morning Bible study, or I guess we're calling it the Bible workshop. Um, So we have a group of uh, teachers, um, and we are going to be studying 1 Corinthians together. So I want to invite all of you to come and uh, join us uh, in the room right there, beginning at 945 and uh, it'll just be a great time of, of Bible study and studying the Word together, uh, figuring out how to read the Bible and how to apply it. And so I want to invite all of you to uh, join us for that. Um, <clears throat> for those of you who are uh, new uh, to our service, I want you to know that we are uh, working through a series of studies and lessons on the New City Catechism. And today we're on question number 31. And so, uh, as we do every Sunday, let's review together the previous uh, 10 or so, uh, beginning with question 20. And so, if you want to read along, or again, I encourage you to memorize them so so you can uh, recite them from heart. All right, let's begin. Who is the Redeemer? What sort of Redeemer is needed to bring us back to God? Why was it necessary for Christ, the Redeemer, to die? Does Christ's death mean all our sins can be forgiven? What else does Christ's death redeem? Are all people, just as they were lost through Adam, saved through Christ? What happens after death to those not united to Christ by faith? How can we be saved? What is faith in Jesus Christ? And today the question is, what do we believe by true faith? What do we believe by true faith? And the answer um, is long. There's no way to shorten it. Uh, It's the Apostles' Creed. And so that's what we're going to be uh, working through. Uh, Don't get discouraged if you don't know it. Uh, We're going to spend a long time uh, doing it, reciting it, and I'm going to reintroduce it as part of our uh, service. And so you have an opportunity to recite it um, each week. So uh, let's read that through together. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, And in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, by the Holy Ghost, 
born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, and the resurrection of the body. Amen. Uh, Let's pray together. Lord, we are thankful for this day that you have made and the opportunity to gather, to worship, to pray, to praise, and to hear your word. And now in the hearing of your word, help us to believe, to trust your word, and enable us through your spirit to obey. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the reading from today, Paul is working through Deuteronomy chapter 30, which is a part of Moses' last words to the people of Israel. And Moses says this, For this commandment that I command you today is not too hard for you, neither is it far off. It is not in heaven that you should say, Who will ascend to heaven for us and bring it to us, that we may hear it and do it? Neither is it beyond the sea that you should say, Who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us, that we may hear it and do it? But the word is very near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart so that you can do it. And so Paul takes those words and he interprets them as being fulfilled in Jesus Christ. He says, it's it's right here, the word of faith. You don't have to go anywhere for it. It's very near. And he concludes verse 9, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And then he backs that up with some verses from Isaiah and Joel to show that faith in Jesus is the culmination of God's redeeming work through Israel. In Jesus the Messiah, all the promises of God, all the promises of God's covenant are now fulfilled. All their centuries of longing for salvation is now completed here in Jesus Christ. And it's even better than what they had imagined because now it's not just for Israel, but anyone, anyone and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. If you confess that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Now, I I don't think Paul is suggesting here a sequence of confessing and believing as if they're two different things. I don't think they're even two different uh, actions or two different ideas. To confess with your mouth and to believe in your heart is really one act encompassing both the outer and the inner disposition. And it combines the public and private as one, as one act of trust. In other words, it's calling for a total response to this claim that Jesus is Lord. And it points to our fundamental response as being relational. Confession and belief is not some formula or some word, some magical incantation that you say. To say, I believe, or to to confess the words, is an act of completely trusting someone. And that's what Paul is getting at here. 
Now, we, we don't talk a lot about confession uh, here. And I think we, we um, I know I certainly do, have a kind of a wrong ideal about confession, especially the way it's used in Scripture. For me, I always think of confession like, um, like in crime stories, right? Where the, the police are trying to get a, uh, a written confession out of someone. You're guilty, and so we, we need a confession, and you have to confess your sins. It's, it's what criminals do to confess. Um, but the word confess in Greek, and the way Paul uses it here and elsewhere in Scripture, means something a little bit different. The word itself uh, is, is a combination of two words, and it means literally to say the same, or to say in agreement. To say the same, or to say in agreement. So, it's a, it's a slightly different idea than just kind of uh, admitting some guilt or wrongdoing. In Greek culture, for example, it was used to describe the practice of agreeing with something that someone else had said. It's kind of like nodding in agreement. To confess was like, yeah, I confess, you know what you said is, it's, it's true. Uh, it was also used uh, in a legal sense when one witness said something and another witness agreed with that. That would be called a kind of confession. Uh, we see this, for example, in 1 John 1.9, this usage. If we confess our sins, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. When we confess, we are essentially saying that we agree with God. We are saying the same things about our sin as God says. God says you're guilty, and so when we confess, we're saying, God, you're right. Your assessment of the reality of my life and the sins in my life, I agree with you, God. So when we don't confess, John says, it's like you're calling God a liar. But when we confess, then we're speaking in agreement with what God has to say about who we are. But the more common way that this word confess is used in the Bible, in the New Testament, is to uh, this idea of public acknowledgement. To confess means that you now openly acknowledge and agree with a particular teaching or a particular idea or a particular person. You're acknowledging this, and so by doing that, you're identifying yourself with that teaching or that person. For example, we see examples of this, like in Matthew 16, when Jesus asks his disciple, Who do you say that I am? And Peter replies, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. That's a confession. That's a confession. He's acknowledging that truth, and he's now identifying himself with that truth. Or when Jesus asked Martha in John 11, I'm the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? And Martha replied, this, this confession, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. She's acknowledging the truth. She's identifying herself. She's, she's linking and, and binding herself to that particular truth. And we're made to make similar kinds of confession uh, with our mouths. Now, some of you uh, do that when you were baptized as an adult. You got to... Uh, give a testimony and make a confession that Jesus is your Lord. Uh, when you became a member of this church, many of you were asked a series of questions. 
who is Jesus? And you, you, know, you would reply, Jesus is my Lord and Savior. That's, again, this confession that you make. Um, many of our students, when they become confirmed, they also make the same confession about Jesus as Lord. It's publicly acknowledging that you are now going to identify yourself with Jesus the Christ. That's to make confession. It's about who we are and who's to whom we belong. And it is a decisive moment when we make that confession, but I don't want you to get the, the wrong idea that you just do it once and that's it. To confess that Jesus is the Christ, is the Lord, or any kind of confession that we make, it, it's, a, it's a lifelong process. It's something that we do repeatedly, um, and it is to be done openly and publicly. You've heard me say before that the Christian life, the Christian faith, is, is very personal. It's intensely personal, but it is not private. It is something that has to be lived out in the world. That you have to identify yourself as belonging to Christ publicly, not, not just you know, isolated somewhere. Um, now, I know some of you um, are shy or uh, you're afraid of public speaking or you know, you're, you're modest and you don't want to kind of talk about yourself and draw attention to yourself, and you may think that, you know, I believe in my heart, and isn't that enough? Um, but Paul says here, it's not. It's, that's not enough to just believe in your heart. You have to confess with your mouth. You have to confess, because it, it glorifies God, it brings a blessing to those who hear, and it's necessary for you. You need to do that. You need to do that. Um, you know, for example, if you've ever been to a Christian wedding, you know that a lot of stuff happens at a wedding. Um, but as far as the, a Christian wedding service goes, the most important part of that service, and the only thing that makes a wedding service different from Sunday service, is that the groom and the bride have to make a vow. That's the only difference. They have to say something like, you know, I promise to, you know, love you forever. That's when they write their own vows. Usually the minister will say, you know, do you, Larry, take Laura to be your lawful wedded wife? And do you promise to, you know, love her and to honor her, you know, through, I forgot the words now. Uh, through sickness and health, for richer, for poor, you know, all that stuff, right? No matter what, do you promise to stay with this person? And what do they say? I do. That's what they're supposed to say, right? Just three little letters. Just two words. Now, imagine going to a wedding service, and they're, they're standing there. And I say, you know, Larry, do you take Laura to be your uh, lawfully wedded uh, wife? And Larry just stands there. You know, maybe he heard this sermon and he thinks, you know, I agree. You know, he's just nodding in agreement. Now, I'm not sure, but I think at that, legally, I can't pronounce them husband and wife unless they say I do. I'm not sure about the legality of that. But right, he can't just nod. Even though in his heart, you know, he might, I love this woman. I'm going to give my whole life to this woman. But he feels it and he means it. But he just kind of just stands there and won't say the words, I do. 
that's not going to fly. That's not going to work. You have to confess with your mouth. Right? And that I do, that word, it's, it's not just kind of mouthing these words, right? It should come from deep in the heart. It should come from a place of deep commitment and of love, right? It's, a, it's an expression of, of what is real in his life. Because just to say the words, I do, doesn't mean anything. Unless it comes from a place where it really does mean something. Jesus himself said, hey, everybody who calls me Lord, Lord... It doesn't matter. Not everyone who calls me Lord is going to be in the kingdom of heaven. So it's not just just the words. I mean, we do have to confess it. But those words, that's why Paul says, you have to mouth the words to confess in agreement, acknowledging it, associating yourself, identifying yourself openly and publicly with Jesus, and, and at the same time, Believe that God raised him from the dead. That is, believe in your heart. So it's not just words, and it's not just something that you hold in your heart. It has to be both. It has to be both. The earliest Christian creed or confession is this simple three words. Jesus is Lord. In the Greek, it's just two. Jesus is Lord. That's it. You know, the catechism asks today... What do we believe by true faith? And the answer is the Apostles' Creed. But if you want to cheat and not memorize it, you can just say, what do we believe by true faith? You can answer, Jesus is Lord. Uh, you know, with the keys, I realized um, after I asked Pastor Dohi to um, put the answer to the Apostles' Creed, I, I wish I had thought of this earlier. We should have just put Jesus is Lord instead of the Apostles' Creed. Uh, for What do we believe by true faith? Jesus is Lord. Someone suggested, you know, that if you were to ask someone, tell me about World War II, you could spend a lot of time trying to explain, you know, the history, the background. You could talk about all the battles and the strategies and, you know, all the tanks and and all of that stuff. Or you could say, the Allies won. Three simple words. Jesus is Lord. Right? You could spend a lot of time if someone says, tell me about Christianity, you could say a lot of stuff. You could talk about the whole Bible, 800,000 words of it, 31,000 verses, almost, almost 1,200 chapters. Or you could say, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. Now, what does that mean exactly? At the most basic level, it's to say that Jesus is the master, that he's the ruler. And therefore, my highest and my ultimate allegiance is to him. If Jesus is Lord, then I have to submit in obedience to what he says, to what he tells me what to do. All of me, every aspect of who I am, my thinking, my talents, my monies, all that I am belongs to God, belongs to Christ. How I talk, how I spend my free time, how I treat others, how I think about the world, everything falls under his lordship. Every aspect of my life has to be in obedience to him. But to say that Jesus is Lord means more than that. To say that he is Lord doesn't mean he's simply that he's, you know, my my boss. But the word Lord, when we say Jesus is Lord, we are saying Jesus 
is also God. The word Lord is how the Old Testament translated the word of the name of God because they didn't want to um, they didn't want to use or to say the name of God in a careless way. And so whenever the name of God appears, um, and, and that name we talked about before, it's, it's Yahweh or Jehovah, they would replace that word with the word Lord so that they wouldn't use the Lord's name in vain. The Shema, for example, the fundamental belief of the Israelites, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. In Hebrew, it reads literally, Yahweh our God, Yahweh one. And so Yahweh, that, the name of God gets replaced with the Lord. The Lord is one. And so the word Lord is identified as this particular God, this God of Israel. So it's not just a master, it's this God who has identified himself as the one true God and as the God of Israel, that there is no other. And so that word, whenever the Christians use it, identify that with God. And so to call Jesus the Lord is to say Jesus is God. And in case there's any doubt, or a little bit earlier in Romans chapter 9, Paul makes this connection very, very clear. He says, To them the Israelites belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God over all. Who is God over all. And so you can, so you can see how when the Christians said Jesus is Lord, it not only shaped their life because they had to give their whole life to Jesus as the Lord, as the Master, but it would invite ridicule and danger in the eyes of the Romans to confess that Jesus is the Lord. That's to challenge the supremacy of the empire. When you say Jesus is Lord, you're saying at the same time, Caesar is not the Lord. Caesar is not my Master. That's, at the very least, unpatriotic and quite treasonous, and you could be imprisoned or even killed for that. If Jesus is Lord, that means then, what about God? For the Jews, whose monotheism was absolute, the idea that Jesus could be God somehow made no sense. It was heretical. It was blasphemous. And you could be stoned for saying something like that. So the people did not take this confession lightly. They knew the consequences of that could be very, very severe. Now, you know, living in this country as we do in these times, it's, it's easy to forget what a radical confession this creed, Jesus is Lord, was. It's to acknowledge, when we say Jesus is Lord, it's to acknowledge that everything he said and did, all of his promises, right, including dying on the cross, being raised from that, all of that, the forgiveness of sins, that is what I'm going to commit my life to. That is what I'm going to trust with my whole being. And that is precisely what the early church did. They confessed that Jesus is the Lord. They worshipped him. They sang praises to Jesus in a way that was reserved for God and God alone. They did it in spite of their, you know, being outcast in the empire. Because they said, you know, Jesus is the Lord. He's my God. And I'm going to submit to him regardless of what the empire says, regardless of what my religion says. I'm going to worship him 
and him alone. And they would be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so then over time, this, this confession of Jesus as Lord expanded. And uh, over the centuries, that's how we have come now to the Apostles' Creed. Uh, let, let me just say a few things about this, this creed. I'm not going to go over the creed in detail at all today. Um, because the catechism that we're going through is going to cover almost you know, all the points that are in the creed. And you can think of the Apostles' Creed as a kind of summary of the catechism we're learning or more correctly, I guess the catechism is a kind of expanded interpretation uh, or commentary on the Apostles' Creed. And so I'm not going to go over it you know, point by point because um, it would just be kind of redundant at this point. But I do want to say a few things about the Apostles' Creed just to kind of give us an orientation. Um, first of all, it's called the Apostles' Creed, but it, it has really very little to do with the Apostles' There's even a, a legend that you may have heard about, you know, um, Peter stood up one day and said, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. And then Andrew said the next line. And then, you know, uh, James and John, that each of the 12 disciples came up with one line of the Apostles' Creed. Um, it's, it's just not true. There's no, there's, no, there's no basis for that other than it makes for a nice story. Um, what we do know is that it probably originated in the second century, so pretty early, is a baptismal formula uh, in or around the city of Rome. Um, And it was modeled after Jesus' words in Matthew 28, this uh, Trinitarian great commission that Jesus gives, where he said, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, Jesus said, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Right? And so the Apostles' Creed has this same idea of baptizing in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so when people, uh, after a period of instruction, were getting baptized, the minister would say to them, do you believe in God? And the person would respond, I believe in God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. Do you believe in Jesus Christ? And they would say, and I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, born of the Virgin Mary, and so on. And so it became this sort of, uh, kind of like the catechism. And that's how the Apostles' Creed got its start. And over the centuries, they added some phrases and, you know, they modified it here and there. And so it took a number of centuries. And so by the time you get to the beginning of the 8th century, we have this, what we have today, this, this particular form. Now, what we have is a little bit later development, but its essential teachings are um, based and reflect the convictions of the early church. Uh, and that it came out of the early baptismal formulas. And so that's why um, it has long been used by churches uh, throughout all history. And so that's what we're going to uh, learn together. Uh, as you know, in this church, uh, we've always used the Nicene Creed instead, uh, because the Nicene Creed, in its, part, in its present form, is, is earlier, um, and it's more ecumenical. That is, more churches um, believe in the... Nicene Creed. The Apostles' Creed, uh, the Eastern churches um, don't really use it because it was a later development. Um, And so that's why we've used the Nicene Creed, even though not too many people really know it. Um, But the Apostles' Creed has has a long history and it's been used by churches in the West, in America, and so uh, we're going to learn that together. Um, And as I said, we're going to start reciting it as part of our weekly services to uh, help you uh, learn it learn it or to relearn it. Uh, Some of you probably learned it when you were kids. Um, And so 
this is what the church used to do, you know, because you have to remember, for most of Christian history, people didn't know how to read. People didn't have books. And so the way you would try to kind of pass on the faith and teach people is they had to memorize stuff. The Ten Commandments, the Lord's Prayer, and the Apostles' Creed as a way of saying, this is what we believe. This is what it means, you know, when we talk about Jesus is Lord. And so uh, that's what we want to do. It's a, it's a way of um, learning about what it is that we believe. Now, the creed, it, it connects us. Um, for me, it's, it's very important because it connects us with a history. It reminds us that we are part of a larger body, a larger family, a larger kingdom than just our congregation here today. We're part of a community of believers, a communion of saints, throughout all of history, in space and time. We belong to something much larger than this particular local body. And so, you know, you should be able to walk into any church uh, in America or nearly every church in America, and even though you disagree about all kinds of stuff, at least the Apostles' Creed, the, the basic ideas and the doctrines and the truths articulated in the Apostles' Creed, we should, most churches... Uh, we can agree to, and, and we share that. We share that. Um, all right. So, um, can I get the Apostles' Creed up there? I want to just... Um, so, um, can I get the whole thing? I want to... Um, as a congregation, we're going to learn the older, more traditional wording, uh, much like we do with the Lord's Prayer. Uh, there, are, there are modern translations uh, that have updated the language. So, for example, instead of the Holy Ghost, uh, it reads the Holy Spirit. In, you know, the words like sitteth and thence, like, let's get rid of those words, Right? Um, he would come to judge the quick and the dead, you know, the, um, you know, meaning the living and the dead, right? Um, some people wanted to get rid of the word uh, Catholic because people associate the word Catholic with the Roman Catholic Church. Um, but, you know, the word Catholic just means, you know, um, universal. Some, um, so there has been uh, some movement toward that. Some people wanted to get rid of the male pronoun in reference to, to God, right, and in Jesus Christ, instead of his only, God's only son, things like that. So there are all these kinds of uh, efforts. And again, I think those are fine uh, to some degree. Um, I remember when I was a youth pastor, one of the big discussions we had um, and, we, and I argued for was they wanted to get rid of the word Catholic and use the word Christian as a replacement. And I just remember having that uh, long discussion. Um, so I want to keep the older language uh, in spite, you know, I know this makes me and by extension, all of you, less cool. Um, but I, I want to keep the older language because, it's, it's, again, it's a reminder of our connection uh, to the other churches. And so, uh, you know, you can, you know, you're, you're old enough to understand, like, that, yeah, words change, and, and so here's what these words uh, mean. Because um, I, I think it's a reminder of our shared history uh, with other churches to use the... Uh, Something like this. And the other thing, too, is that if you're listening still to the, uh, the songs in the catechism, you'll see that the catechism changed that first word 
from I believe to we believe. And uh, that's, that's something I, I think we should not do. Uh, as I said, it began as a baptismal confession. So it's something that you would say, I believe. Of course it's something we all believe together. But it was something said personally to say, this is what I believe as a part of the body. And so I want to make sure that we, we keep at least that part of it, uh, I believe. Okay? So that's kind of, that's what we're going to do. Um, you know, I, I really think this is important for us because, as I've said many times, you know, we're, we're living in a culture now that is uh, postmodern and especially post-Christian. You know, and then we, we toss in uh, relativism, pluralism, scientific materialism, and it's, it's very easy to get lost and confused about what we believe. I mean, it's, we're, we're, we're as confused about who Jesus is and what it is that we believe as Christians as the first century was. I mean, I feel like we're, we're sort of back to the first century and that we're so confused. There's, there's so many ideas about what this all means. And so um, I think this is a way of reminding us of here's what the church has believed and has always believed and continues to believe. I think it can ground us so that what we believe is not just what I'm feeling at the particular moment or whatever happens to be trendy at the moment. It grounds us because we're, it's, we have such short memories now. You know? We have such short memories now. Um, the other day in our uh, uh, FG, we were just talking about some bands that we used to listen to in the 80s and 90s. And like, if you were just born a decade later, like you didn't know these bands. Like, How can you not know this, right? But we, we have such short memories of our past and of our Christian past. And so this is a way of kind of grounding us when we confess that it's not what I think at this particular moment, but it gives me a confidence, something, a little stronger foundation for me to stand on. Um, and I, I can tell you for myself, the Apostles' Creed and other creeds has, has given me, or it, it's, it's steadied me um, when I've had doubts. In some moments of doubt, it's, it's, it's been kind of a steadying hand uh, in my life to remind me you know, that I believe in the resurrection of the body. I believe in the forgiveness of sins. You know, but sometimes you, you, can, you can doubt because you're struggling. And, and, you know, believe it or not, if you recite some of this, you know, this I believe. Because it's not what I feel. You know, maybe I don't feel something right now, but I know this to be true. I know this to be true, that Jesus is Lord, and I can put my foot down on that. Um, One last thought. I think it's very easy for us to wrongly think that the Apostles' Creed or the entire uh, catechism that we've been going together is this just sort of series of um, cold, dogmatic, theological propositional, you know, ideas that um, we just have to kind of memorize, right? That it's just supposed to be these facts that you're supposed to know. Um, To some extent, that's true. These are things that we ought to know. But it's far more than that. I, I hope you can see in the Apostles' Creed that it is a story. It's a story. It's a story about God who from the very beginning of creation planned in his perfect will the story of redemption for us. 
from creation to redemption in Jesus Christ. And that's our final hope, the life everlasting. This is God's story of what he's doing in history. And it tells us where we're headed, and we have that promise. And so it's, it's figuring out, how do I weave my story into this story that God is telling? So it's not just what it is that we believe when we recite the Apostles' Creed, but in doing that, in telling the story, we are reminded of who it is, whom, who, who it is that we believe who it is that we have placed our trust in. It speaks not just of facts, but of a person and of a relationship to whom we are placing our trust. You know, I've been telling you over the last several weeks that to believe or to to faith as a verb is best understood as trust. The act of believing or faithing is not about, you know, Believing in some sort of uh, unprovable or um, crazy, right? Like, I believe in the, in the Loch Ness Monster or the abominable, right? That's not, that's not believe or faithing in the Christian biblical sense. Faithing or believing, it's, it's what I give my heart to. It's where I'm going to place my trust. That's believing. And so when, when Paul, you know, to confess with your mouth and to believe in your heart, it's not just like, yeah, you know, people aren't really sure about this, but maybe I think it's kind of true. That's not what he's talking about. When we say, I believe in my heart, it's, I'm going to put my entire weight on this. I'm going to put my entire life on this. Because I know this to be true, that Jesus is Lord. Right? And we say, and that's why he uses the language of, I believe. It doesn't say, you know, I think or I feel. Not even I know. It's I believe. I'm going to trust. I'm going to trust the promises of God. So we're not stating a bunch of opinions here or even, you know, theologically correct statements about, you know, God exists or anything like that. That's not, that's not belief. We don't reduce belief to, to a series of sentences, you know, statements. It's, I'm giving my heart to this person. Body, soul, mind, strength, everything. Because of who God is, because of what he's done for me in Jesus Christ, I can live in communion with the saints. I can believe that my sins are forgiven, that I will have resurrection of the body and life everlasting. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. God, we thank you uh, for your word. God, help us to believe your word, not just as a series of truth statements, but as your story and a reminder of the relationship that we can have with you to be able to place our trust in you. Because we believe that you are God. We believe that you die for us. We believe that there is forgiveness of sins and the life everlasting. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as I said, the Apostles' Creed